I invite you to turn in your Bibles, please, uh, to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 8. 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 8, we'll read until verse 28. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, began to reign over Israel in Tirzah, and he reigned two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. And when he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, he was over the household of Tirzah. Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Baasha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? The 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired, and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. And so Omri went up from Gibbethon, and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house, and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of the sins that he had committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sins which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri, and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginah, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginah. So Tibni died... And Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel. 
And he reigned for 12 years, six years. He reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill. And he called the name of the city that he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. And Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Mebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. And now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers, and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. As we read, O oh God, of the history of your people, we see their sins portrayed to us, the sins of idolatry and the making of others to sin, and the open and flagrant disregard of your commandments and of the covenant that you had established. O Lord, we ask that we also might be sobered by the things that we read and that we would be enabled to place our faith in that one son of David to whom you have given such great and wonderful promises and to whom we belong this night. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read about the sins of Israel, and uh, such is the, uh, the topic uh, uh, of, these, uh, of tonight's reading, uh, we see something of the way in which uh, mankind, since Adam's fall, has continued in a path of idolatry and sin. And uh, we see it played out in the people of Israel, and uh, it reminds us that the problem of sin is one, and the problem of idolatry is one, that belongs not only to an ancient people long ago and to ancient rulers long ago, but it belongs to us as well. And we also are fallen in Adam. We also are those who are prone to worship idols. And we also are, uh, we, we are dependent upon that one seed of David that God has provided, uh, who would come from the, the line of David. And so after the author of Kings has made plain that uh, the line of David has the promise, this promise, this lamp, this light that shines in it, after the author of Kings has made that plain to us, he continues on with his history of the northern kings of Israel. All of them illegitimate. All of them promoting idolatry and leading the people of the northern kingdom of Israel 
still the covenant people of God into deeper and deeper sin. I've entitled my sermon tonight, Tin Pot Despots. Um, I, I looked up online to see what that phrase, tin pot, comes from. And it has to do with, uh, in England, of a time when they began to make pots for boiling water out of tin. And they were considered inferior and cheap, worthless and paltry. We see something of that kind of individuals, uh, those, that, that uh, description kind of fits the men that we have just read about. They are despots. They are those who have taken authority and taken power. Uh, other than uh, Jeroboam, whom the Lord had made promises to that if he would be faithful and follow uh, his commandments, then God would bless Jeroboam. But the rest of them come, one right after the other, as men who have obtained their position through intrigue, betrayal, and murder. They're not certainly servants of the Lord. They don't care for the people of God. And it's a wonderful thing that we have read tonight, the account of the baptism of Jesus and the words that were spoken at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so all of these kings, these tin pot despots, point us, do they not, to that one seed of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his baptism was declared to be the beloved son of God. But we are in a time in the kingdom of northern Israel of great darkness. There's a line in one of Shakespeare's plays called The Tempest. And the line says, hell is empty and all the devils are here. Sometimes you have the feeling that that kind of a phrase describes the world that we live in. And as I was uh, thinking about Pastor Rob's sermon this morning, um, that line came to my mind, hell is empty and all the devils are here. It's as though Satan has been let loose. You see this play out even in a microcosmic way in the history of God's people, especially in the northern kingdom of Israel. The laws of God are flouted. They are disregarded. And God's commandments concerning idolatry and that way in which he will be worshipped according to the means that he has set in which, in, in which was safeguarded in Jerusalem, in the temple. So I think that as we look at the text that we see tonight, major thought that I think that uh, these verses teach us is this. Though hell seems to be emptied, and all the devils seem to be running loose, God rules in justice, and his word is fulfilled. God rules in justice, and his word is fulfilled. I have two major points. First, we'll look together at these three kings. And secondly, we'll consider three lessons we can learn from them. First, the three kings. 
In chapter chapter 16, beginning at verse 8, we have the account of Elah. Elah is the one who is the son of Baasha. And like the son of Jeroboam, Baasha reigned for two years. It's an interesting parallel. Jeroboam's son Nadab, chapter 15, verse 25, reigned for two years. Elah, the son of Baasha, now reigns for two years. His father had been warned by the prophet that destruction would come upon his family, that judgment would come upon him. But we read of no repentance on Basha's Basha's part. And so uh, his son, when Basha dies, Elah takes the throne. The one thing that the writer of 1 Kings wants us to notice about Elah is mentioned in verse 9. Zimri, the commander of his half of his chariots, conspired against him, and when he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Tirzah, Zimri came in and struck him down. So the one thing that seems to be the unique thing about Elah is that he is a person who likes to be with friends and to party and to drink and to get drunk. For some reason, that fact is mentioned. I'm sure that the Holy Spirit intended it to be mentioned. And it is a good thing for us to consider what the Bible says about drunkenness. Because of this habit, Elah was unprepared for the danger that was lurking around the corner. Because of this habit, he was not at his post. He should have been with the troops fighting in Gibbethon. But he was not. He was with his friend drinking himself drunk. And because of this habit, disaster came upon him. The Bible warns us against the sin of drunkenness. Who has woe? Solomon writes in Proverbs. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine and those who go to try to mix wine. And so, uh, and so Elah is a ruler who is, uh, is, is foolish and is given and prone to the sin of drunkenness. We need to take warning from that. While the Bible tells us that wine is a gift of God and is a blessing, It is one thing to sip a a glass of wine with a meal. It is another thing to drink yourself drunk. And in our own time, don't we see it? We see the stories in the news, especially of 
of, of people in a certain age bracket at a certain time in their life, particularly influenced by friends. We find parties in which people get themselves dangerously drunk, and we find this happening where we read of young, young men who lose their lives because of it. And it's most sad and most disconcerting. Drunkenness, and the sin of drunkenness, is always something that is a prelude to disaster if it is not repented of. And certainly it is. This, this is the case here for Zimri. While he was drunk, he was struck. Uh, in the case of Elah, while he was drunk, Zimri struck him down. Nothing is said too much about Elah's doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But we do find that in verse 13, he is grouped with his father, and we read these words, For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. And so it seems that Elah is almost uh, attached to his father and he is attached to all of those in his family. And he is one who participates in the sins of his father, Basha. He sins. And the text clearly says that his being struck down was for, verse 13, for all the sins of Basha and the sons of Elah, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God to anger with their idols. And so it is this blatant, in-your-face, contemptuous of God, contemptuous of his word, this sin, we are told, is the reason that Elah was struck down. But it is according to the word of the prophet. It is according to the word of the Lord, the prophet's Jehu, uh, and the word that he spoke. And that's Elah. The second king for us to consider is the king is uh, Zimri, Zimri who struck Elah down. And we see Zimri described for us in verses 15 through 20. Well, Zimri's reign begins illegitimately, we see, in verse 11, as soon as he seated himself on the throne, uh, he uh, struck down the house of Basha. And so it's it's a reign of bloodshed. It is a reign of terror. He strikes down uh, not only the house, all, all those, Zimri, and all the house of Basha, but also all of those who uh, were uh, even his friends. Verse 11, not a single male of his relatives or his friends. So Zimri murdered uh, Elah and all of his family, all of his friends. Zimri is a, 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 makes himself king, and he is a man of great bloodshed. What's striking is that his reign is so short. Verse 15, the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in 
Tirzah. Not seven years, seven days he reigned. And uh, the way his reign ended was that word came to the troops as they were fighting in Gibbethon, and uh, the troops uh, uh, heard, oh, well, uh, 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 Zimri has, uh, has killed the king. Uh, why don't we select our own king? And that very day, without a period of grieving, for Eli, uh, with no grieving whatsoever, that very day, right then and there, they select their uh, king. And uh, the, the king that they select is Omri. And so they are, uh, uh, they, they, Omri uh, goes from Gibbethon and all of Israel with him, and they besiege Tirzah. And uh, Zimri's uh, seven-day reign ends in a blaze of fire, for he goes to the king's house that is over him, and he burns the house and himself in it. Burns the house over him with fire, and he died. Verse 18. And we're told why. And this is the repeated theme. It's a repeated refrain. Because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings? of Israel. So Zimri's reign is a reign of seven days. It ends ingloriously in a suicidal blaze. And this is declared to be the judgment of God upon him for his sins which he committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord. We next consider Omri in verses 21 through 28. Omri had been recognized and chosen by his troops. Uh, unlike Zimri, Zimri is more self, uh, it's almost as though uh, Zimri uh, doesn't have a lot of external support. Omri does. He's selected by the troops and he is made the leader. He is made the king by the troops. And uh, he comes and he finds that half of the kingdom prefers another man by the name of Tibni. Omri overcomes his opposition there, and uh, Tibni dies, and Omri is the one remaining on the top. He has a longer reign, 12 years, not seven days, 12 years. And something else about Omri is mentioned by the writer of Kings, and that is that he was one who bought a hill. He bought a hill, and he built a city on the hill. And the city was, a, the, 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 the hill belonged to a man named Shemer, and uh, he built this city called Samaria, and he moved the capital from Tirzah to Samaria, to the city that he built. And so 
Henri seems to be a man or a ruler of some substance and ability, in contrast to the two previous rulers. And we know from extra-biblical evidence, for example, in uh, an archaeological uh, stone uh, with uh, writings on it, we find uh, evidence that uh, Omri is one who attacked Moab and humbled Moab and brought them under subjection to the northern kingdom of Israel. So Omri was a person of some military uh, expertise and might, and that fits the story and the account that we have of Omri. And yet, what is the focus of the writer of 1 Kings? They, he mentions the fact that he bought a hill and he built a city. But right away, the conclusion about Omri is found in verse 25. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri and all that he did and his might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and he was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. And so Omri is, uh, is brought to his end. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam. He committed the sins of Jeroboam. And so God brings judgment upon Omri. So what then are some of the things that we might learn? This brings me to my second point, and that is lessons that we can learn from this. I think the first thing that we can learn is that God is the one who defines what sin is, not man. God is the one who defines what sin is, not man. Again and again and again, we read of the sins of these kings was that they walked in the way of Jeroboam. Well, what is the way of Jeroboam? And why is it that God seems to hold them accountable for that particular sin? You remember the account that we looked at earlier of Jeroboam. What was Jeroboam's sin? He created golden calves. He created calves and he establishes alternate places of worship, one in Bethel and one in the northern region of Dan. And he establishes an alternate priesthood, not from the tribe of Levi. He's totally disregarding the second commandment. And just by way of review, to consider the first and the second commandment. What is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then, uh, what is the second commandment? The second commandment is this, that thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down 
thyself to them, nor serve them. So Jeroboam's particular sin was in, uh, to, to use Martin Luther's phrase, Luther liked to say that wherever God builds his church, Satan builds a chapel next door. If Jerusalem and the temple is God's true church, Bethel and Dan are Satan's chapel. They maintain religious practices and ritual, and the people of Israel are encouraged to worship at these idolatrous sites using idolatrous means. And it shows that God has a particular zeal and a particular concern when his worship is violated by men's ideas and men's imaginations as how they think that God ought to be worshipped. So Jeroboam's sin is particularly not only a breaking of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, but it is the breaking of the second commandment. And the second commandment applying to the making of images in the worship of God and causing leading Israel in the sin of idol worship. The second commandment forbids, according to the catechism, the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed by God's word. And so God defines sin. We might broaden that principle and say that the Ten Commandments give us the definition of what sin is. What is sin? Sin is a violation of God's word, God's law. And it is the breaking, the transgressing of God's law. And so uh, uh, Jeroboam has, has led Israel in open, defiant, brazen rebellion against the God of Israel. That which he made Israel to sin More and more, it seemed that boundaries were transgressed. And it seems to them as though this is just fine. So in the case of of Omri, we can see then that even though he was successful in some matters, this isn't what mattered to the writer of 1 Kings. What mattered to the writer of 1 Kings is that Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, he did more evil than all before him. It's not what his accomplishments were, and that applies to us as well. The most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, is not that which we are enabled by God to accomplish in life, whether that be grades or athletic prowess, whether it be... Uh, a quick-witted uh, ability to solve problems, get ahead, whether it's the ability to earn money, whatever, whatever giftedness we may have, whatever abilities God has given to us, what matters most importantly to the Lord is where your love is placed. 
and that you love him above everything else, above all your friends, above all your family, above your father and mother, above all of your sentimental attachments and traditions, that you would love and serve the Lord first and foremost. That is what God cares about. It's evident in the passages in this in Kings that that's what God cares about in, in each one of these men. It's what is declared is that they sinned the sin of Jeroboam. They broke God's commandment with respect to worship brazenly. And so we ought not to think that we can brazenly disregard God's commandments, not suffer the punishment for it. That's the thing we see in this text, that God does bring punishment upon those who oppose him in this way. The lowliest and the least impressive person is more in the eyes of God more loved and esteemed. If you think of these rulers as those who are tin pot, those who are inconsequential in the total scheme of things, the life that is consequential, the life that means something, the life that God has set his love upon, is a person who loves him supremely. It's the person who worships him according to his commandments and his word and loves him above even their own success. That's the first thing I think we learn is that it is God who defines sin and it is God who brings judgment upon it. The second thing is that God's word governs history. Seen this uh, uh, on Sunday mornings, and we've studied the book of Revelation. God's word has set the bounds of each of these men's reigns. They come into power because God uses them, and that God's prophet has predicted that certain things will happen, that judgments will take place. They do take place, and God, through his word, is controlling history. God sets the boundaries. He sets the limits of the growth and the development of the sin of these men. And don't we see that in human history? We see it in Noah and the flood. We see this in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see it in the destruction of the Canaanites. When the wickedness of the Canaanites reached a certain point, God brought Israel in to bring about his judgments upon them. And now so ironically... The very sins that the Canaanites practice are the sins that Israel now is practicing. And we can see what lies ahead for Israel. <laughs> the time is coming when judgment will come. <clears throat> These tin pot rulers. Well, I guess I need this water. Important that is, Matthew, gets me to be able to get through my sermon. It's a private joke between Matthew and I. He's always very faithful in bringing water up here to the pulpit every now and then. If he's not here, it's not that. It, it, or sometimes he brings it and I don't use it and he gets after me. 
But uh, <clears throat> so God's word, we see this theme again and again uh, in the text that we have read, that God's word as spoken through the prophet comes to pass. And you need to know and to take comfort in your own life that all of the promises that are yours in Christ Jesus will come to pass. God's word never fails. It is God who is reigning. And his word is reigning. And he brings his word to pass. And then uh, the third thing. These failed and tin pot despots point us, do they not, to the one who, uh, as we read tonight, <clears throat> was baptized by John the Baptist. <clears throat> not for his own sins, but because he identified with sinners. And they were over him. It, it was that the voice proclaimed, this is my beloved son. This one who is of the seed of David. This one who is the true king. Don't you just, as you read these accounts, feel what the godly in Israel must have felt? Because there were godly people then. Oh, for that seed of David. Oh, for that one who will come and rule in righteousness. Oh, for that one who will come and establish peace on earth. What is the message of the gospel? It is that he has come. And he's presented to us on the pages of the gospels as the one with absolute power over evil, whose word raises the dead. He is the one that as we live in an evil world and as we read accounts like the ones that we have read, which are somewhat depressing, he is the one that our hearts yearn for. He is the one that we long to see face to face. Yes, they lived in evil times as we live in evil times. But Jesus Christ is the seed of David. He has come. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. You know, and all of the collective sin of his elect was laid upon him on that cross. All of the idolatry which we commit, all of the sins and the deep and the dark sins that are attached to us have been laid upon this one who came to deal with sin once and for all, to bear its curse, to set us free. Jesus wasn't like these murdering kings who murdered other people to take power. He is the one who said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but behold, I come to do your will. He is the one who perfectly loved the church and gave himself for her. And he is the one to whom we look even tonight. Man's work faileth. Christ availeth. He is all our righteousness. He, our Savior, has forever set us free from dire distress. Through his merit we inherit light and peace and happiness. Every tin pot ruler thinks that's what they're going to do. 
everybody's got some great promise that they're trying to sell some new uh, some new way to bring peace and harmony to the world. Man's worth faileth, Christ availeth. He is the one who brings light and peace and happiness. May it be that we would be so united to him that we would uh, know that peace. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we read the account of these dark days, we realize that evil is real, that it prowls the streets, and that it is even in our own hearts. O Lord, deliver us from it. Grant to us, O Lord, such faith in Christ that we would know the forgiveness of our sins. Grant to us, O Lord, that we would be cleansed and washed and made new by the one who is the only true and rightful king over his church. And Lord, we pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's sing together.